Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and you found the Christian channel that loves atheists. Today, we're going to be talking about TikTokers who have decided to ditch Jesus and what their reasons are. Before we jump right into that, I just want to say that what we're doing here is possible because of Trinity Sem. That's Trinity S-E-M.edu. That's Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary, where I am a professor of apologetics and evangelism. And you can study in a non-denominational setting from an evangelical school, conservative theologically, and you can do it from wherever on this planet you are. If you're on the moon, you can do it there if they have Wi-Fi, because you can do this all online. And uh, we have many people who don't play plan to be professionals in uh, academics and seminary or pastors or anything like that. They just want to go further in their Christian faith or learn how to do apologetics and Christian philosophy. And we'd love for you to consider trinitysem.edu today. Also, if you appreciate what we're doing, you can visit us at patreon.com slash trinityradio where you can get all kinds of free episodes, uh, eBooks, audio, at least one audio book and seminary level courses there, not for credit, but you can get that at patreon.com slash trinityradio. Someone has apparently asked people to submit their answers as to what finally served as the turning point when it comes to their uh, becoming an ex-Christian. All right, so here's that. To all my ex-Christians out there, what was the turning point for you? There's the question, and let's hear the first response. I tried for a long time to be a progressive Christian in an evangelical Christian space, and I thought I was doing okay because I thought that the people that I had around me held progressive beliefs. They just weren't as vocal about it as I was, but there was one precipitating event that made me realize that that was not going to work, and it was that my daughter came out publicly on my Instagram page several months ago. She had been out privately at home and at school and with a few choice people, but she wanted to do it publicly, and she used my platform to do so. And in the comments of that section, not a single person from our church or from any of the evangelical spaces that we've been a part of said anything supportive, not publicly and not even privately to me. Some of them had known prior to that that she was LGBTQ and they still could not bring themselves to say anything to me privately about it. And it made me realize that despite the fact that they'd known her since she was born, they know her heart and how special she is, not a single one of them were willing to cross that bridge and publicly show love and support for an LGBTQ teen. I was out after that. So right off the bat, I'm not sure exactly what is happening here. Despite the title of the video, maybe she shouldn't call herself an ex-Christian, but an ex-evangelical or an ex-evangelical, as they're sometimes called. That would actually make sense of what she says. She says that she tried to keep being a progressive Christian in an evangelical church, but ultimately she couldn't. Okay, so then you went to a progressive Christian church that matched your beliefs, right? Maybe. See, that's what I mean. That sounds like she finally left the evangelical church. But if so, why are you surprised that people going to a particular kind of church would actually believe and have the sexual morality that those kinds of churches are known to have and often have clearly stated somewhere? If I go to a progressive church and I develop relationships and friends there, but I know the views of the majority of the church on, let's say, abortion, 
I'm not going to be utterly shocked when I hear them say something that demonstrates that they do in fact believe the pro-choice ideas or don't show support for pro-life ideas. I'm not surprised. I expect that. And so if I don't want that, I don't join their churches. Simple. Now, there was something very important said there about her daughter coming out and people, no one from the church being supportive. And we, we definitely want to be loving, especially with kids. We want to be loving, um, supportive in every way that we can, caring, available. But, uh, and to the extent that, any, that people were legitimately unkind and unloving, then that's horrible. Christians shouldn't, shouldn't be that way. But it is also true that what is sometimes thought of as a lack of support and a lack of love um, and a lack of care is actually the, the way that particular people express their care and love and concern. You see, for Christians, for, for Bible-believing Christians, which is who you surrounded yourself with <clears throat> and kind of accepted that this is, at least this is the beliefs that they're supposed to hold. And you may have been surprised to find out that they did hold those beliefs to the extent that they did. But you surrounded your, your daughter with those kinds of people. These people are going to think that the way that I am supposed to appropriately love this person appropriately care for this person is to express what I think the Word of God says about this. And to not do that would be unloving, actually. And this is especially the case. You say, well, that's fine. That's their beliefs. Why are they pushing that on someone else? Well, this is especially the case when they are when they think they're talking to another Christian and, and they think that they're talking to someone who has the same particular Christian beliefs that they do on these things. Of course, they're going to think that the way that they're that it's appropriate for them to kindly and lovingly address that issue from a Christian perspective. You don't have to agree with them, but we should be kind and we should be loving. But if she is saying what the video indicates, that this was the turning point of leaving Christianity, I would at least see the logic she has in mind. If she's saying something like the evangelicals are right about what the Bible uh, teaches about this issue. And since I can't accept that, I can't be a Christian. Well, okay, there'd be some kind of logic in something like that, at least. I'd still disagree. But she's not saying that. She's saying she was a progressive Christian going to an evangelical church. And when the evangelical church said and did things that represented a different ideology that her progressive, than her progressive Christian ideas, she rejects Christianity on the basis of what other people believe. But she doesn't. This doesn't make any sense. I feel like I'm missing a piece of this puzzle somewhere. I feel like there's something that I missed. If I could just get it right, that it would that something would sink into place. It, it sounds like maybe she means that she left the evangelical church finally and went to a progressive one. But if she just went directly from an evangelical church to uh, Christianity is false, when she wasn't an evangelical in that sense anyway, um, it's, it's odd. In any case, we haven't heard any kind of explanation of why the events that happened to her mean Christianity is false. So we do the best we can with what she does say. My pastor told me that it's in God's plan for me to be raped. 
that the amount of times that I've been sexually assaulted and raped is all in God's plan and he's preparing me for something. I quit that church and went to another one. I talked to the pastor about the same thing, the hurt that I've been going through because I've been raped. He said to get over it. God has something else in store. And if you keep harping on you being raped, you'll be blocking your blessings. If that's what your pastors told you, they either said what they said incredibly inelegantly and officially, as Christians, even pastors sometimes tend to do. Think about that. Somebody has that happen, and the first thing they hear from a Christian is, listen, God's got a plan for this. A plan for that? While there are theological positions that do hold that God determines wicked acts because they are meaningfully and uh, meaningful and important parts of his plan, for many of us, because we believe that God gives mankind free will, there are many pointless evils that happen. Are they part of God's plan? In the sense that he redeems that evil, incorporates the fallout into his plan, and brings about something beautiful. Someone very close to me was conceived as a result of rape. And while on my theology, I don't think that God wanted that at all. At all. He can redeem the situation and bring something beautiful out of it. This person's life. The person that was conceived as a result of this particular situation. Now, this isn't to get into any discussions about abortion or anything like that. We have plenty on our channel that cover those things. But what I am saying here is God redeems evil situations and brings something beautiful out of it but he doesn't want those evil things to happen. In short, no, God did not want this to happen to you. But yes, it's true that he wants to bring something beautiful for the kingdom out of your life, and that might include your story. As for this notion that you should just get over it or you'll miss a blessing, this is definitely on the list of stupid things to never say to someone in the face of tragedy. Now, what is true in many cases is that in the struggle to now live with and in some sense try to gain victory with respect to any traumatic event, there will be benefits, progress, um, blessings in that, if you will. And this is true whether Christianity is true or not. It's just the way things are. But recovering from harm like this seems incredibly complex, overwhelming. I can't even imagine. And I think we should be extremely cautious with the kinds of things that this pastor said. In any case, none of that means Christianity isn't true, nor would it mean that even if those pastors, who I think are overwhelmingly wrong, were right. And this is a theme that we'll see here where it, seem, where it really seems like we're deciding what's true in this video. Uh, some of the other people will do this too. It seems like we're deciding what's true about the world based on what we like. And we don't get to decide what's true based on what we like. There are many things that I don't like that I still have to accept are true. I don't like that cancer exists, but it's still true whether I like that or not. We don't get to decide reality based on what we would like to be true. I'm only posting this because mine is so jokey. Like, it's so jokey. It's literally a joke. The whole religion tied me in, and they had me held on the fact that I had felt it, right? Like, I had felt God. I had been in those church services. I had been on my knees. I had felt that feeling of energy through me. And no matter what nobody told me, nobody could take that away from me. I had felt it. I knew it was real, right? It was tangible. Until I experienced divine connection in a concert, literally in a concert, with far nicer and more loving people than I had ever experienced in a church. And I was like, oh, this is definitely, this is definitely where the real God hangs out. 
And since then, I found God in a lot of extraordinary places, but very few of them have been churches. This is something that comes up a lot. Uh, internet atheists often will bring this up. YouTube atheists will, will often bring this up and and point out that, look, part of the part of the whole deal is you're supposed to have this experience of God. And Christians will sometimes point to experiences that they've had in the midst of worship and say, well, look, I, I know that I experienced God there in some way. And what they mean is what they're referring to is not some, um, not necessarily some intellectual content or some message that they got, uh, although they may feel that, that, that God communicated something to them. They're referring to a feeling, a sense of unity with those people around them in the audience, a feeling of connectedness with what's going on. Um, there's some there's some sort of a uh, perhaps a euphoria in that, and of course, expressing things that you deeply believe are true um, can, can can bolster that. And you're in a crowd of people that ostensibly you agree with, at least on some of these things, and it and it has this in, this this uh, there's an effect, there's a vibe, there's a feel, and I think it's something deeper than that for Christians. I really do, but. Uh, or can be. I don't think everyone experiences something deeper than that. But uh, people will say, well, look, I, I've experienced that during musical concerts before, or I've experienced it while doing drugs, or I've experienced it during um, a sexual act, I, Matt Dillahunty used to say. Uh, and so, so this proves that uh, one might say, I'm trying to do some help to build some kind of an argument here. This just proves that these, these ideas or this idea that this is feeling God or something isn't real. And therefore, I have no good reason to believe that Christianity is true. Well, first of all, Christians don't, Christians shouldn't, and Christianity has never at large taught that the reason you should believe Christianity tr is true is principally because you... Um, of how you feel during a musical worship experience. That's, that's not what it's about. What it's about is, look, this is the truth about the nature of reality. Now, some people may come to believe that's the truth about the nature of reality because of an experience of God that they take to be an experience of God happened in a worship service. That's true. It could be that uh, they come to believe in God because they really trust someone who, who told them what God had done for them. It could be that. Really, the best reason to believe that Christianity is true, aside from what we believe is going on spiritually, the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, the work of God in your life, is because there's actually good evidence to believe that it's true. There's good reason to believe that it's true. We believe that there's great arguments and evidences. And on this channel, there are whole playlists devoted to uh, God's existence, the resurrection, uh, cults, and other world religions. And so that's the, the best reasons, intellectual reasons. But now, if, if you're just going to say, well, look, the only reason I thought I had for believing this was true were the experiences that I had during worship, where I had those kind of feelings that I also had in concerts and, and, and in perhaps in other parts of life. This goes back to what the, this is a question about what worship is. You have a capacity, like Christians believe that God made your hand in a sense, that he designed the notion of the human hand, whether evolution is true or whatever else. The fact is Christians believe that God intended for humans to exist and to have a hand like this one, some, something like this one, and for it to be able to grip things. And we can point to a naturalistic process that explains how all that works. But I still look at my hand and I see that this is incredible, that I can pick something up and I can move it around and, and look at it. And it's just amazing to me that I can actually do that and that it works so well. My mouth, when it comes to my mouth, it's clearly uh, incredibly designed so that I can eat and speak and breathe. And those are things about which I am a happy customer. When it comes to eating and breathing and, and uh, talking, I am a happy customer. Those are some of my favorite things to do. And so I, I think that there's some sort of a, of, of a, 
uh, designed to that. And just because I can explain how it all works naturalistically doesn't mean I'm, I don't think that there was a mind behind it. And in the same way, we, we now understand some things about what happens to the human brain during worship. And it seems like that worship is something that you can sort of activate, that you can sort of choose to do in some circumstances, that you could experience this feeling during a concert, that you could experience it during other, other situations. In fact, the Bible kind of presumed all along that you would find that to be true. Let's hear a little bit, though, first about what the science behind this just might be. The question as to whether or not we are hardwired for religion and spirituality, uh, I think, is, is a very important one. When we look at how the brain works, it looks like the brain is able to very easily engage in religious and spiritual practices, ideas, and experiences. All the brain scan studies that we've done show that there are multiple parts of the brain that seem to get involved. So it really does look like the brain is so easily capable of having these experiences. Now, exactly how that ability got into the brain is, of course, a much more complex and both philosophical and scientific question. The scientists would say, well, maybe it was through millions of years of evolution that uh, because being religious or spiritual was an adaptive process, it got incorporated into the biological mechanisms of the brain. And there's certainly a lot of reasons to support that. And of course, if you're a religious individual, it also makes sense that if there's a God up there and we're down here, that we would have a brain that's capable of communicating to God, praying to God, doing the things that God needs us to do. Otherwise, there would be this kind of fundamentally silly disconnect. We wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to have any kind of interaction with God. So it does look like the brain, no matter how it got there, does have this profound ability to engage in religious and spiritual experiences. And, and that's part of why we've seen religion and spirituality be a part of human history since the very dawn of civilization. Well, at the back of our brain is a part of our brain called the parietal lobe, which takes all of our sensory information and helps us to construct the sense of ourself and how that self relates to the world. It's denoted by the arrow here on this scan. And you can see when the person is at rest, all the different parts of the brain and the parietal lobe are all acting about the same. But when the person experiences that profound sense of oneness and unity, the activity in that area goes away. And that person, as that area decreases, what normally is a sense of self that it creates, that sense of self goes away and the feeling of unity, oneness, and interconnectedness of all things permeates the person's experience. The fourth core element of these experiences is a feeling of surrender, as described by this 55-year-old agnostic male. He said, I surrendered my past, my future, any conception of myself, and any conception of spirituality. Where does surrender occur in your brain? Well, right behind your forehead is your frontal lobe. And studies have shown that when you are concentrating, when you're purposely trying to do something, you turn on your frontal lobe. That's the seat of the will. That's what helps you to make things happen. Well, what we have observed in a number of different practices where the person feels that they surrender themselves to the experience, they surrender to the feeling itself, the activity in this frontal lobe, the red areas of activity, they kind of melt away. And that makes sense because if this area is normally on when we're trying to make things happen, when that area shuts down, we begin to feel that sense of surrender. We let our purposefulness go. So it's pretty interesting to me. I think it's really interesting that we can look at the brain and we can see some things happening. Interesting that we have a capacity like this, right? Like, why do you have a worship function kind of as something that your body can do? That's really interesting. 
But second, it's kind of what the Bible kind of indicated was true, that, that anyone could do this, that you didn't have to be a Christian, that anyone could worship. Um, it's just that you might be worshiping the wrong thing. All throughout the Old Testament, we don't find the, the message being so that you're capable of worshiping anything, you should become uh, a Christian so that you can worship the one true God. No, even in the Old Testament, we see, no, uh, uh, you're worshiping false gods out there. You're going to worship. You can worship, but worship the one true God. That's, that's the message we seem to get. So actually what you experienced when you left was actually more confirmation that the Christian suggestion is true. And it seems like maybe there's a scientific explanation for how this works. And it's still incredible that we have this capacity, which leaves me still amazed by worship and seeing it as an incredible reason to believe that the Christian God exists. If it hadn't been my preacher grandmother yelling at me that my father is allowed to be as absent as he wants and when he is present, he's allowed to disrespect me and call me out my name because he is still my father and that's what the Bible says, supposedly. It definitely had to have been when I found out the origin of Christianity definitely came from slavery and that our grandmothers and grandparents literally had to adopt it because that was what they were being force fed and the only way that they were allowed to kind of live and just survive, not even kind of live an okay life, but simply just survive and not be killed as long as they had to convert to Christianity. Yeah, something's not adding up to me. We have free will and yet y'all still choose to participate in a religion that enslaved your ancestors. How do you think they would feel about that if they were able to just like witness it? <laughs> I want to say that while I could never, ever, ever underscore enough the evils of what you are rightly calling out, and though I can't possibly know what it would feel like, I can try to imagine how that would impact your acceptance of Christianity. That important truth stated One's family may have come to accept Christianity for terrible reasons, but that doesn't mean Christianity is false or that you shouldn't accept it as true. I might come to believe that the earth is round because I read it in a comic book, and that's a horrible reason to accept something is true. But guess what? Even if I accept that the earth is round for bad reasons, it still happens to be true. So you can't claim a thing is false just because of how one came to hold it. It's just the, that's, just, that's just how things are. That's just how it works. This reason for holding Christianity to be true, or this reason for holding Christianity to be false, doesn't have any logical force. It doesn't have any. But guess what? It's still her reason. And it still has emotional force. And all I can do for that is to say that the king we worship is not the same as every wicked man who claims He's in the kingdom. Our king was in a humble situation and was interested in the abused, the disenfranchised, and the ignored. He would reject those actions and ideas just like you do. The good thing is he'll deal with them. He's a just king. But what they did and what they represent isn't what he represents. It's the opposite. This has been a long journey with a lot of turning points, and I've basically been an atheist for like 10 years. But up until very recently, I was of the opinion that Jesus was probably a great guy, a true historical figure who had a big following because he preached such a nice message. And then Trump happened. Anyone with even the slightest grasp on reality knows that Donald Trump is just an irredeemably terrible person. They also know that Donald Trump lost the election. 
and yet his followers talk about him like he's the most altruistic, benevolent being who has ever walked the earth. They talk about him returning as president with the same reverence that Christians have talked about the second coming of Christ my entire life. People are literally already praying to Trump. His cult has already gone far beyond what I ever expected a living person could accomplish in their lifetime. Because of that, I'm starting to wonder if Jesus was just a populist loudmouth whose history was rewritten. This one mixes it up a little bit. I like that. Um, but here's the thing. This kind of amounts to, and I'm trying to say this in a friendly way, but this kind of amounts to, here's a way somebody got popular. So maybe that's how Jesus got popular. Maybe. But is there any good reason to think so? And are there reasons to think it's not how that happened? Is, it, is there reason to think that... His story wasn't rewritten. Uh, well, at least when it comes to certain things. For example, uh, here are the facts that we need to know about Jesus's life and death and the events just after his life and death in order to make some conclusions about the most significant and important historical claim surrounding the life and ministry of Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. If, he wrote, if God raised Jesus from the dead, then I think we're, we, we can be pretty sure that he's not the same as Trump, right? And so here's the facts that we are confident, that the historians are confident, like across the board are confident. One is that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion under Pontius Pilate, partly because the greatest historian of ancient Rome, Cornelius Tacitus, records that for us. Um, Jesus, Jesus, people had experiences after Jesus' death that they interpreted to be appearances of the risen Jesus. This is something that, that people will grant and try to find ways to explain. Maybe they were confused. Maybe they had some kind of a group hallucination. Maybe one or two of them had hallucinations and convinced the rest. There are things that people say about this, but uh, Paula Fredrickson has, has one quote that's become pretty well known. She is a liberal Jewish scholar, and she says um, something. To, I'm probably going to butcher it, but the, but the pertinent elements are here. Um, she says something like, I don't know what they experienced, but they, but I know as a historian, they must have experienced something. So they had experiences that they believed to be appearances of the risen Christ, the um, willingness of people to face serious persecution and possible death, and some did die. And so the relevant facts seem to be there. And how far back do they go? Well, many scholars, even those who are not friendly to uh, conservative evangelical Christianity, will say that perhaps as early as three to five years after the events of the resurrection, there was already a creed that was circulating that mentions the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and appearances to others. You know how you hear the story that, uh, uh, that we could call a fish tale where you have some guy pulls a fish out of the pond and it's like that. By the time he tells his wife about it, it's like this. His grandkids, it's like this. And the boys down at the shop, it's like this. And by the time the whole town has heard about it, your grandpa has convinced everyone that a catfish the size of a Volkswagen has been pulled out of the city pond. Yeah, well, this is what some people want to argue happened with Jesus. And it's kind of like maybe this history was rewritten like this guy was suggesting. Maybe it's like that fish story that just got bigger and bigger and out of control. The problem is then we wouldn't expect to see things like the death, burial, and resurrection being talked about really early, like in the first few years after those events. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, 
uh, and then Paul adds himself in, in verse 8, we see what, what people think is a creed of the early church that many argue does go back to as early as three years after the events, if not earlier. And so it wasn't a fishtail that developed. It wasn't something that got rewritten by history. These claims were made very, very early on, almost immediately after, if not immediately after. We Christians believe immediately after um, this happened, people began talking about it. And at the very least, in very close proximity to the events. So I don't think that this flies. I think that we have good reason to believe that uh, Jesus was who he claimed to be and not anything like Donald Trump. When I was at Bible study one night and they told us that a murderer could go to heaven if they accepted Jesus Christ, but someone that did not commit any real crimes or sins in their life, but had never accepted Jesus into their hearts would go to hell. And then I asked them, but I thought God was a loving and forgiving God. And if these per people were doing it merely out of the kindness of their hearts and not in obligation of some be higher being or power, wouldn't that make them even more acceptable to go to heaven? They didn't like that question very much and they didn't even answer it. And at this point in my life, I didn't even know if I really believed in God. But after that night, I knew I didn't believe in the God that the Christian faith portrayed. Because that just doesn't make any sense to me. I'm sorry. So what we have here is a suggestion that on one hand, we have people who are um, not Christians, but they never have ever committed what Christians would call a sin. And then on the other hand, we have um, Christians, but who have sinned on the level of murder. And a suggestion that this is obviously false because this doesn't make any sense that the murderer could go to heaven and then the person who committed no sins but just wasn't a Christian goes to hell. Well, first of all, it has never been a part of Christian theology at all, Orthodox Christian theology, that there are such people who never sin. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what we learn here is, we Christians hold, is that we're all sinners. So really what we have now is a question of, yeah, but many people who aren't Christians live lives that don't, don't seem to be as sinful as the lives that other people live who are Christians. So it still works. Well, it, it, I get the intuitions about that from a certain perspective, but here, here's the problem. The problem is that when, that all of us are, because all of us are sinners, all of us are deserving of death. That's it. We're all deserving of death. We broke God's law, all of us. And the fact that in a modern 21st century person's estimation, their own, the, the things, some of the things that they do that the Bible calls sins aren't sins to them or aren't crimes in their eyes, but are still crimes in terms of their violations of what God intends or wants for his people, violations of the moral law in that sense. The fact that, that, that individual humans might not think that the things they do are as bad as what other people do doesn't matter. God is the arbiter when it comes to these things. And I admit that that's a tough pill to swallow. But remember, again, this isn't about what we would like to be true. It's not, I'll accept what's true, what to be true, what I personally think seems right or what I would like to be true. We accept what's true on the basis of what seems to be the nature of reality, what seems to conform to reality. And uh, sometimes those are things that we don't like or don't necessarily match what we think seems just or what we think sounds right based on our virtues that were developed um, in our culture. Uh, but, but, but the idea is we're all sinners, and so we've all violate, violated God's law, and so we're all in need of salvation. 
And so Jesus offered it. And yet you're a sinner. And in your eyes, you may not be as bad a sinner as someone over there who's done horrible, horrible sins. And I actually agree with you in that sense. But here's the thing. There's still someone offering salvation to sinners. It's like if, if, if people were in debt, and some people were in debt to the tune of millions, and some people were in the debt to the tune of um, $150,000, the person whose debts are forgiven for the $150,000 should be thrilled that their debts were forgiven, just like the person who owed millions. In both cases, you had people that owed money, that owed a debt that they couldn't pay, and someone paid it for them. You, you don't then point at them and say, well, that's not fair because some people who didn't accept your offer to cover their debts are still in debt, and on paper, they're better people than the millionaire who you just bailed out. And the millionaire who you bailed out owed a whole lot more debt than me. I barely held any at all. In fact, in my mind, I don't owe you any money. It doesn't work like that. No, Jesus paid the price for sinners. And we don't get to determine what, whether, uh, he, whether some people are so bad that he shouldn't save them or other people are so good that he should save them. He's the ultimate standard of justice, and any intuitions you have about justice ultimately flow from him anyway. As an ex-Christian, I can say one turning point for me was realizing that there are other religions out there and realizing that I was believing it out of faith and believing it because my parents taught me to believe in it, not because I actually believed it myself. So yeah, now I'm an agnostic atheist, and I'm agnostic because, I don't know, there's always that possibility that there might be a deity. And I'm an atheist because I don't really believe there is one. So yeah, I'm much happier this way. So there may be more content to this, but all we're told here is that there was an awareness that there are other religions out there and that they were only accepting their religion on the basis of faith. And so maybe they should realize that's not a good reason. And maybe they should, maybe now there's just no reason to believe there is a God. Well, hey, listen, if you came to believe Christianity was true for bad reasons, or you just kind of absorbed it through culture and, and you don't feel like that's a good enough reason, then I don't think that means Christianity is false at all. And maybe you wouldn't say so either. But what it does mean is you need to go out and look and see, are there good reasons? And we haven't heard any explanation of good reasons. Listeners might say, well, yeah, Braxton, you don't know what, what they did. They might have gone out and looked and found all the apologetics and been completely unpersuaded. Maybe. But I run into people all the time who talk like this who have no awareness that there even is such a thing as Christian apologetics. If you're not aware, I would encourage you to check out the rest of the videos on this channel. When my pastor announced that marriage is between a man and a woman and there was room for nothing else. And when he said that, I felt my wife's hand on my leg, her fingers digging in. She leaned over and said, please don't stand up and leave. So I stayed there for the rest of the sermon. Uh, shaking my head a couple times. He even said, there's going to be a lot of you aren't going to be happy with what I got to say. I thought it was going the other way. <laughs> and then when he said that, uh, he could see I wasn't happy. I was only three rows back. We sat up pretty close to the front. And uh, he finally got around to looking me in the eye and said, as I said, there might be a few of you that want to stay home for the next couple of weeks. And I said loud enough for him to hear, or forever. So again, why are you surprised that people... Uh, going to a particular kind of church actually believe and have the sexual morality that those kinds of churches are known to have and often have clearly stated. 
I, I don't know why this is surprising. If, if I went to a church, as I said before, where I knew that they believed differently from me about certain things, um, I wouldn't act surprised or feel like I needed to verbally say something. And, and you say, well, yeah, but maybe he didn't know what this church thought about this. Well, he refers to the guy as my pastor, which to me indicates some form of familiarity. And from his wife putting her hand on his leg, it seems like th this is something that's been bugging him. Okay, maybe not, but that's what it sounds like. And if, if you're going to a church, that, I mean, even if you're, you're just going to a church, I mean, the presumption, unfortunately, you can't make this presumption much anymore, but the presumption should be that if I'm going to a church that ostensibly stands on the Bible, that the Bible is something that, that, that has some level of authority, then the assumption should be that these people believe what it says. And it says some things about this issue. You may not like what it says. You may hold to a different hermeneutic. But even if you hold to some kind of different hermeneutic, I'd love to hear what that would be. that allows you to interpret passages like this in a way that's more permissible for this. I don't know why you would be surprised to find that other people who stand on the Bible, who believe, say they believe in the authority of the Bible, it turns out that they, they do believe what they believe the Bible says. They think the Bible says this, and they, they stand on that. And why not go talk to this guy privately? He'd probably love to talk to you about it. And if not, that's on him. Try to talk to him. Go talk to him. See what he thinks. But if you do that, I would encourage you to have an open mind, at least to the consistency in his belief. You see, we begin and end this video with people who seem surprised that Christians whose, whose stated beliefs, because they go to an evangelical church, um, at least in the first case, go to a Bible-believing church that says on paper this, and you made an assumption that they don't really believe that way. And you find out, oh, no, actually they're consistent with their state of beliefs or the state of beliefs of their organization or the Bible that they say is authoritative. They're consistent with those beliefs. I may not like it. I may think it's horrific. But the fact is they're actually the ones who are being consistent. I found out that they were, and that bothered me. And listen, I... I may, have, I may not have much respect at all for certain kinds of groups that are pushing certain types of ideologies that most of the people on the right and the left would reject. I still have more respect for them if what they're saying is consistent and they have the courage of their convictions to grit their teeth and go with it. And so uh, the people that go to evangelical churches and believe what evangelical churches say they believe and they're consistent, you might respect that, despite your personal feelings. I hope this was helpful. And listen, I hope that you will check us out in other ways. We have another podcast called Supernatural Stories, where I interview people about their supernatural experiences with the angelic, the demonic, and uh, the healing stuff, all, all kinds of interesting Ouija boards. It's really interesting. You need to check it out. You can check that out on uh, iTunes and at uh, Spotify and maybe Google Podcasts now. You just search my name, Braxton Hunter, and Supernatural Stories, and you should find it there. And if you do and you enjoy it, uh, give us a five-star review. We need that. We're, we're trying to build something there. And with that, I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.